It's in John 17, and um, would you do the honor of standing for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read verses 1 through 5 again, but pay attention specifically to verse 2. Here's what the precious and errant infallible Word of God says. And Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, um, that, to who, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that this word is everlasting, Lord, that this word will continue to be all that we need to live um, life and to produce godliness amongst your church and in your presence. Father, we pray that it would do just that, that it would produce in us um, a furthering desire to seek you, to know you, to worship you, so that you would grow us into the image of your Son. You are worthy this morning, Jesus. You will continue to be worthy and you always will be worthy of every ounce of praise we have to give. So I pray we'd give attention this morning. Hearts would be opened. Um, ears would hear. Eyes would see the beauty of your word and your scriptures. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So once again, those of you who were with us last Sunday know we spent some time considering uh, what we've referred to as the Lord's other prayer in John 17, and specifically just verse 1. Uh, from that verse, verse 1, I want you to think about all that we considered from one verse. I love the Word of God, and this is one of the reasons I love the Word of God, because there is so much to glean from the truth found even in one verse. From that one verse, we reflected upon the unique nature of this prayer. We touched on the relevance of our Savior's posture in this prayer, that his eyes were lifted up to heaven. We learned about uh, the unselfish nature of our Savior in his personal petitions in this prayer that are presented with the most of ultimately in all things, first and foremost, bringing glory to uh, the Father. We learned about the unique manner in which Jesus addresses God as Father and how that relates to our privilege now for us to be able to call him our Father. We considered the importance of viewing every moment of our lives in light of the eternal decree and plan of God. Uh, finally, we noted the important role which prayer played in the life of Jesus even as he approached the inevitable horror of the cross and how that relates to how we ought to approach even the most terrible difficulties in our own lives which appear to be inevitable. Recognizing that we cannot change what God has ultimately decreed to come to pass, but we can certainly pray to be sustained in and through whatsoever comes our way while also praying that good things would come as a result of it. And we had deduced from the example of Jesus how knowing what is to come is 
not something that should cause us to run away from prayer, but is actually an incentive to pray rather than a deterrent. So we learned quite a bit just from one verse, didn't we? Well, this morning, we're going to attempt something like this again. We are going to try and mine just a few more rich gems from the next verse in this wonderful prayer. So again, we're going to read verse 2. Let's read it together one more time with verse 1. Here's what the Word of God says. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So we touched on uh, this last week a little bit, that Jesus has acknowledged that the hour in which redemption was going to be accomplished has arrived. That is the hour, of course, that refers to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, which, by the way, they're all interconnected and inseparable because without any one of these things, without his death, without his resurrection, or without his ascension, there is no such thing as redemption. (laughs) They are all necessary for our redemption. But in light of that, I think there's also a connection between this hour of redemption that's accomplished in both the Son and the Father. Uh, in, In praying that he would be glorified, Jesus was praying that glory which would be given to him as a reward for accomplishing our redemption. It's a specific glory he's praying for. He's praying for that which would come as his reward. He prays for this glorification of himself again with that pure motive that God would be glorified in and through his glorification. Now, ultimately, Jesus understood that this was the chief end of man, to glorify God, even as we ourselves need to know this to be our chief end, and really, the chief end of all of creation. Jesus was aware of that. But I want you to see, in in this next prayer, and really in this verse, what we're giving here is going to be a fruit of that glorification, Uh, We learned that the Father would glorify the Son by giving him gifts. And this is what we see first and foremost here, that God has given Jesus the gift of authority. So we're going to look at this in three different ways. Two gifts given from God the Father, God the Son. And in light of that, one gift given from God the Son to his church. The first gift we see here in the text is the gift of authority that's been given by God the Father to his Son. We learn this is how he would glorify the Son, by giving him authority over all flesh with the expressed purpose that that authority would be used to give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. So you may notice, though, in this prayer, Jesus speaks of this authority as something that's already been given to Jesus before he even went to the cross. It's spoken of already uh, belonging to him. There's a sense in which, though, that Jesus does not have or has not received yet this authority. And I think we need to understand this. It's very important. There is a type of authority that was yet to come, which immediately causes us to scratch our heads and wonder, right? If that's the case, then why did Jesus speak as though he already had that authority? It's a good question, right? Well, think about this. In short, he could speak of that way because it was good from the very moment he and the Father agreed to carry out this plan of redemption from eternity past. He could speak of it that way. In that sense, he could speak of it as even from the moment it was first promise of it being a reality. 
But the thing is, it wouldn't be revealed until after his work of redemption was accomplished. It wouldn't be revealed toward after the work of the cross was accomplished. Another way to look at this is in the same way Jesus, in the first verse, spoke about the hour of redemption having already arrived, even though, what, he had yet to go to the cross. He could also refer to having received this authority. Again, this all comes down to the certainty of the inevitability of God's decree coming to pass. Nothing at this point or at any point could prevent the son's petition from being answered. His petition was in perfect line with what the father had already willed to do. So the answer, to answer uh, to his prayer was a sure thing and it was as good as done and Jesus sees that as the reality even though it still needed to be done in space and time. Now the reason we know that this authority was something that was yet to happen in terms of it actually happening in space and time comes down to what we're told in other parts and other portions of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, for instance, it's a very familiar passage for most of us, and, and here is what we read about our Savior in those verses. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We might also recall that familiar saying that Jesus gave his apostles in the Great Commission after his resurrection, where he spoke to the apostles and he said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. This is something the apostle Peter confirms when he's reminded that this authority was given to Jesus through the resurrection and ascension. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is all, once again, in light of his resurrection, in light of his ascension. Another passage we might turn to, actually, is another very familiar passage, Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, we will see that the promise of this authority was something that was promised and foreseen long ago towards the Messiah, towards the Savior. Uh, Isaiah says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will Will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors you see that the spoil there is given to the victor king it's foreseen so in light of the work he's done for the people there will be a reward he's given this reward of authority this authority was something that the father would give the son as a reward for his obedience to that covenant of redemption, which we will hopefully get to, Lord willing, next week. 
Now, I want you to see, the thing we do well to appreciate here is that the authority we're talking about here is different than the authority the Son has already had as being the second person of the Godhead, right? Because when, when we hear that Jesus the Son was given authority, it causes us to bring this question forth, right? I was under the impression that he had already had authority over all things, that he always had authority over all things. Well, listen to this. This goes without saying. If, if you are God, you have authority over all things. So I want you to try and follow here. In Jesus' essence as God, the Son rules over everything, just like the Father and just like the Holy Spirit. But that's not the kind of authority that's being referred here in in John 17. What we're talking about is his authority as the God-man. Jesus was, always has been, always will be God. He is with the Father, the creator of the universe. He did not become authoritative at his incarnation or at his exaltation here. But here's the distinction. Uh, Before the incarnation... God the Son existed, but Jesus the God-man did not yet exist. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed with all authority, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, had not yet died for sinners, and the sentence of condemnation hanging over his people had not yet been stripped from Satan's hand by the shedding of his son, Jesus' blood. But it's precisely The God-man, Jesus Christ, and the crucified, risen Savior, triumphant over sin and Satan and exalted to the right hand of God and installed as the Lord of the universe who's now given this authority. So yes, the Son of God has always had total, absolute authority in heaven and on earth. But when he had done this great work of redemption, once for all, God exalted him as the God-man, the Redeemer, the Risen One to the right hand, and now, as never before, put the rule of the universe, the mission of the church, into the hands of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Mary, Son of God. He, he was the promised king that we referred to and saw throughout all the scripture. This is what he's referring to, his authority as his kingship, right? He's the promised king from the tribe of Judah. He is the promised one. He's the promised son that was to come from the line of David who would sit upon the throne eternally. This was the kingship that Jesus would receive by way of his humanity, By being born into the line of royalty which God had set apart for this very purpose. So therefore, it's a kingship that he enjoys not only as God the Son, but as the God-man. Speaking of this king to come, uh, God said this in Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession." This is what was promised, and it was promised to take place in and through the the line of David and his humanity. I want you to ask this question. Okay, that's a lot of particulars there. Do we really need to know all that, right? What's the point? Why is this important? Well, first of all, it's important because it's in the Bible, (laughs) and it's God's word. 
So if he says it, it, it ought to cause us to think that in some level it's important, right? But, but let's think of this. You see, the kingship of Jesus isn't just some doctrine that we believe in that has no bearing on our lives whatsoever. It, it, this is not some simple truth that we teach only for the sake of memorizing and puffing ourselves up and reciting so we can pat ourselves on the back when we recite it. Rather, the kingship of Jesus has a bearing and a purpose in everything we are and all that we do. As Christians, we need to understand that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he is our King and our Lord. And as the Lord, we owe him allegiance, we owe him honor, and we owe him obedience. This is the type of kingship we must not only proclaim with our lips, but we must boldly proclaim with our lives. So, so let me ask you an application question here. What does Christ's kingship look like in your life? It is not enough to simply go about the business of wanting to see the kingship of Christ acknowledged in the world. We really need to start with ourselves. What does this kingship look like in your life today? What does Christ's kingship look like in your home? Are you acknowledging Jesus as your king in the way that you live in the presence of your neighbors and co-workers? The way that you live in the presence of your extended and immediate family? What does this kingship look like in your life? How difficult is it for people to figure out that Jesus is your king? Uh, there are uh, some accents in this world that are quite obvious when you hear them, aren't there? Uh, in fact, anytime I go somewhere outside of uh, the, the northern Florida region, it's um, become aware to me that I even have a little bit of a southern accent, which I, I mean, compared to most people in this county, I don't think it's that bad, right? Uh, but when I go anywhere outside my region, they know you, you must be from the South. It's pretty easy to see that those accents are obvious. When you hear some people who speak English even as a second language, it is sometimes very easy to figure out where they are from, isn't it? Okay, so in light of that, let me ask you this question. Do you talk with a heavenly accent? Is the language of the world now your second language? If, I, if we spend any time together, would I notice something different about your accent and the way you speak? Questions like this are very important. And this is what it looks like for Jesus to be king. He has authority over you. You owe him. Jesus isn't simply your get out of hell free card. You owe him your allegiance and obedience as the sovereign Lord of the universe. That's what it looks like for Jesus to be king. Now again, I know we spent a lot of time on kingship here, but I, I want to cover two more gifts that we see here in the text. Uh, second, knowing that you can't have a kingdom without citizens. The father not only gave Jesus a throne, but he also gave him a people. And that's what we see here, a gift of the church from the father to Jesus. Notice, uh, the father gave him authority over all flesh uh, so that he would give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. In other words, 
Jesus was not only given a throne from which he rules, but he was given a particular and special people over whom he would rule in a special way. Jesus reigns over all things, and he has a special eye towards his church as he reigns. The church is the apple of his eye. We're told that the Father gave the Son a gift, and that gift is his church. Think about this. Those who are in Christ, if you're in Christ today, if you're submitting to Christ as King and as Lord, those who are in Christ are a gift from the Father to the Son. Have you ever thought about yourself being worthy of called a gift of God? Some of you, the answer is yes, and it shouldn't be, right? That's the issue. That's what you are if you are in Christ, though. You are, in a sense, a gift of God. You are a gift of God. And that's an amazing thing to think about in light of your own sinfulness, right? One pastor put it like this. He said, we often think of the Son as the Father's love gift to his people, but here we have his people as his love gift to his Son. Isn't that incredible? Imagine that. Think of that. Even while we were sinners, God planned to give us to his son as a gift and as a reward. You might say, well, wait a minute. You mean me? Wretched sinner that I am? Yes. If you are in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, that is what you are in Christ. It's very comforting to know, isn't it? That you're a gift from God? The late great who is worshiping in the kingdom of heaven this morning, R.C. Sproul, takes comfort in this when he said, the only reason I can give under heaven as to why I'm a Christian is because I'm a gift of the Father to the Son, not because of anything I have ever done or could do. (laughs) Friends, that's why, by the way, you can take hope and confidence and be secure in your Christianity. That is why this doctrine of being able to lose your salvation is so difficult for me to ever be able to grasp. It's because you are a gift from the Son to the, or from the Father to the Son. There's, there's no returns here, right? Uh, the Son is not the type where uh, some of uh, my, my dearest family members, where I give them a gift and they're looking to immediately return that gift to get something they really want, right? That's not how it goes here with Jesus in any way, shape, or form. In the eyes of God, you are a prized possession. Just look at what it costs for him to gain you. You're a prized possession. Look at the lengths he has gone to which he has gone to care for you and to take you to himself. If you belong to Jesus, then you are precious in his sight. And if you are the prized possession of God, then you don't need to worry about being lost. Now, you do need to worry about whether you are truly in him. But if you know that you've really given your life to him, then that worry should no longer carry in your mind. In John 6, 37, Jesus reminds us, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. How often do we hear Christians today speaking of people losing their salvation? How is that possible? (laughs) 
If Jesus loved his people so much that he was willing to come into the world and go through the terrible troubles that he endured, the worst of which, of course, was bearing the wrath of his Father on our behalf, if we're told then that there is nothing that could separate us from the love of Christ and that no one could snatch us out of the Father's hands, that all that the Father has given to him, he will lose none, then tell me, how is it possible that somebody could lose their salvation? It's not possible. This is a heinous doctrine. It's not, it's not once saved, always saved. It's if you're saved, then you're always saved. The problem with that doctrine is often we don't know what it means or looks like to be saved because we treat Jesus as simply our Savior who gets us a free pass to do whatever he wants, but he's not our Lord. If you're saved, Jesus will be your Lord. He will be your king because he's given authority as king over all the earth. And if he is your king, he will never cease to be your king. What a beautiful, beautiful truth that is. Oh, there's so much application here, uh, but we must move on. We're going to conclude this morning by noting the fact that there is another gift mentioned in this text. We just considered how we are a gift to the Son, but there's another gift mentioned here. It's the gift of eternal life. Gift of eternal life from the Son, Jesus, to the church. We read that Jesus will give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. Now, the thing I want you to note about this eternal life is that, friends, it's, it is a gift. It's called a gift. It's something given to us by Jesus. Uh, Jesus gives us eternal life. Now, note the fact that it had to be this way. Eternal life had to be a gift. It could be no other way. If salvation was ever going to come to you, friend, it was going to have to come as a gift. It's something given to us by Jesus. We could never earn it. And now given that this is eternal life, that this life is a gift, it again emphasizes what we just said, that you cannot lose it. If it was given to you, even while you were his enemy, what would possibly cause any to believe that it could be taken away or lost? If it was given by grace to begin with, then it will remain with us by grace to the end and forever and ever. If you didn't gain it by your faithfulness, then you certainly won't lose it by your lack of faithfulness. God is faithful. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He secured these things for his people Grace is grace. One pastor noted that so often and with great dread, men view their status with God based upon their negotiations. That is so true, by the way. Am I good enough? Am I sincere enough? Am I faithful enough? And those can be valuable questions, he says, but the woeful answer to each should lead us away from confidence in self and towards full confidence in Christ. When you start to doubt who you are in Christ, when you deal or you struggle with that, look away from yourself and look to Jesus. 
Your flesh and the devil would love nothing more than for you to keep looking at your own navel and to continue to be woeful about how terrible of a person you are. You are a sinner, yes, but guess what? If you are in Christ, if you're trusting him by faith, if you've given your life to him, God loves you. If you belong to him, God loves you and you need to be reminded of that love again and again and again. So when you find yourself troubled about where you are in this life, troubled about how you're living for Christ, take a moment to look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Then in light of that, everything becomes increasingly clear. Salvation is the free gift of God and it only comes by grace. If you happen to think that you are in Christ because of your faithfulness, then it would be easy to see how you could think you might be able to lose your salvation. But if you come to Christ and it's only by his gracious invitation to come with him, come to him with nothing in your hands whatsoever, with no money to buy, then it can only be freely received and you ought to be comforted to know that the same one who received you when you first believed is still holding on to you and he has promised that he will never let you go. The reason you can be confident and secure in your salvation this morning is because if you belong to Jesus, the Father has your hand in his. It's not the other way around. Now, I want you to see one more thing here this morning, and this is a difficult truth. Uh, we see here in this verse that the gift of eternal life is given to many, but it's not given to all. This, this is a sobering reality. Not everybody will be saved. And I really wish that uh, you would be able to come on Wednesday nights if you could make it. Because two weeks ago we talked about this particular doctrine and, and how withholding healing does not cause blindness, right? That if you're saved it's fully, wholly, securely because of Jesus. But if you're lost it's because you don't see Jesus as beautiful and as, as a treasure. And that's, that's you. That's your choice. It's your responsibility to see Jesus this way. And yet we have to come to the reality that only... Only as many as the Father had given him would be given eternal life. Jesus, listen, was given the power and authority over all things for this very purpose. He was given authority over all in order that he would save many. And that's the term we, we see in Isaiah 53. We see all over the scriptures, right? That, that, that God will save many. What did Jesus come to do, right? He came specifically to save his people from their sins. He came to die and give his life as a ransom for many. Not all, but for many. And listen, this is what's important here. He didn't come to make salvation a mere potential or possibility. He came in order to give life, and if Jesus accomplished his mission, then he's done exactly what he accomplished. That's exactly what he's done. Now, while it's hard to process that not all will be saved, we can take a great comfort that many will be saved. Because we want to ask the question, how many is many? Church, if we're told anything in the scriptures, we're told that the number of the elect is innumerable. Uh, so many is quite a bit. Uh, we might even say that it's enough. That it is plenty for you this morning to find a place in this kingdom. 
right here and now, there is room for you to receive Christ as Lord. There is room for as many as will come. There is great room and we will see the evidence of how many Jesus Christ does give eternal life to when we get to heaven. There will be an innumerable host of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so that's a glorious truth. But while it's sad and heartbreaking to know that not all will be saved, it ought to be a great comfort to us to know that there will be many that have been and will be redeemed. Now, I, this, there's something that happens when this is talked about. When there's, I hate to use the word limit because it, it, the, it, it's not. There, there's, the limit's not, not for you in any way, shape, or form. You have the opportunity now to receive Christ as Lord. Uh, I, I hate to use that word, but this is what happens. Uh, some people hear talk about things like this and things said like this, and what they do is they use it as an excuse to not pursue Jesus. Uh, some people feel that since not all will be saved, that many people will find themselves or want to find themselves throwing their arms up in the air saying, well, I guess if I'll be saved, I'll be saved then. Whatever will be, will be. If, one of, if I'm one of God's children or chosen, then I will be one of God's children or chosen. I'll come to Christ when he draws me, and that will be that. But if not, well, there's nothing I can do about it anyways. There is such an inconsistency with that attitude. I want to use an example here. I want to compare this to the limited number of seats uh, or, uh, uh, or tickets that you might have to a sporting event or a concert. And how people react to that sort of thing. For example, let's, let's use this example. Let's say you are a fan of, choose any artist, uh, the Eagles. Everybody like the Eagles? Take it easy, right? Hotel California? Everybody know who the Eagles are? All right, good. Uh, should I, Garth Brooks? I don't know. No, I don't want to. I want to go with the Eagles. I'm going to go with the Eagles. Okay. I know there are some Eagles fans out there. Let's say the Eagles are coming to town and they're playing for one night only at, at the Daly's Place, Okay. And now everybody knows that there are only going to be a set number of seats to that concert. There are only going to be so many. So let me ask you something. What will the diehard Eagles fans be doing the moment those tickets go on sale? Do you think they'll be sitting back and saying, well, whatever will be, will be. There's only a, a set number of tickets. I'm, if I'm not meant to go, then I'm not meant to go. Are they going to respond like that? No. The diehard fans will be lining up, camping out to get tickets even the night before. They will be on the phone, on the internet, willing to pay big bucks to a scalper to get into the concert. Those who want to see that show will make every effort to get a ticket. How much more effort should people be making concerning eternal life? Folks, those who truly desire to be saved and have eternal life are not going to be the ones who will sit around saying whatever will be, will be. If I'm meant to get it, I guess I'll get it, but I never have to pursue it. No, those who desire not to be saved will, uh, uh, will those who desire will be, to be saved will pursue the means that God has provided for them to come to Christ. They'll go after that. They'll walk straight towards that desire. If you desire Christ, it's an evidence that he may be calling you to salvation. In fact, listen to this. There are none who seek for Jesus who will not find him. 
Jesus says that in Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. And the encouraging thing is, church, what we're talking about this morning is far more important than any concert or any sporting event. This is a matter of eternal life and death. The question is, are you in or are you out? If you're out this morning, you are not in a good place. I can only pray that you don't grow comfortable in your position. I can only pray that your heart would be turned and you would begin to pursue Jesus and seek him. But if you're in, and church family, have joy. Take courage because there's no place better to be. The good news is that the number of those God has saved is far greater than even the greatest venue we could ever imagine on planet earth. Friends, it's not a matter of limited space. It's a matter of desire. If you are truly concerned about your eternal destination, then you are going to do something about it. Those who truly want to be saved will pursue the means that God has provided. So I just leave you with one question this morning. Have you secured your eternal place in heaven by looking to Christ? Have you? If you have, then friends, celebrate. You have been given as a gift from God to the Son. And as a reward, you will inherit the gift of eternal life. But if you're not, oh, how I pray that you'd pursue Christ, that you'd seek him, that you'd run after him, that you'd desire such a salvation. I trust and believe he's faithful to grant it to you, even this morning. I pray that you've secured your place in heaven. Let's close this morning in prayer. Would you stand with me? Father, we've seen wonderful things from your word this morning. We've seen difficult things, but we trust that your word is true and we believe it. And Father, I pray for those of us who are here in the church that we would, Lord, as opposed to looking continually towards ourselves and assurance and measuring how good we are, measuring what all we're doing to maintain or gain our salvation, that we would instead look to Christ. We would instead ask what our relationship is to Christ. Is he our king? If the answer is yes, then Father, you would give us great peace in being able to see us, uh, ourselves as being given a, as a gift from the Father to the Son and inheriting eternal life. But if we don't see ourselves as falling under your kingship or lordship, that, Father, you would cause us, bring us to seek you, to pursue you in love, to follow you. Father, there is, Lord, certainly um, room for everyone here in this place tonight to have their eternity found in heaven. There is room at your feet, Jesus, for every person in here. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you, that, Lord, they would seek you and you would grant them the gift of repentance leading to eternal life. 
They would do that through, Lord, desiring you, much like we would, Lord, run to something we desire, much like we would run to you, something we're passionate about, Lord, that they would run as soon as the invitation is given at the end of our service to receive King Jesus. We trust you and we thank you for your work and how merciful and great you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.